episode 333 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're usually lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed here never reflect those of the firm, our clients, our institutions, families, or pets. Uh, uh, but today, uh, uh, because we've got a slightly longer than usual uh, interview and our news roundup ran a little long, um, we're breaking up the news and the uh, interview into two episodes. So this is episode 333. And it's an interview with David Ignatius, a Washington Post columnist who writes on foreign affairs uh, and who is uh, a spy novelist uh, and uh, one of the more realistic spy novelists in terms of understanding what's happening in the intelligence community. And his latest book, The Paladin, uh, uh, does not disappoint in that regard. Uh, So uh, uh, we are going to interview David uh, and then close out this uh, episode. If you're looking for the news roundup, you're one too far. You should be listening to episode 332. All right. Our interview today is with David Ignatius, who has been a national security reporter at the highest level for decades in this city, uh, and who has also written uh, uh, a host of spy novels, um, uh, which are entertaining and always um, touch on issues that are top of mind for the intelligence community. So that suggests he has pretty good sources inside the intelligence community. Um, And um, uh, the book I want to talk about today, David, is The Paladin, uh, which is your most recent uh, um, uh, book. Uh, It's got a host of uh, up-to-the-minute issues, many of them uh, technology-focused in it. Uh, uh, But as we were getting ready to do the show, you said that the inspiration for the book wasn't so much the technology as another book that you had read that you were uh, kind of working through. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So uh, thanks, Stuart, for for inviting me. Any uh, novel begins, uh, at least for this author, with the dual problems, challenges of the plot and the characters who are going to embody the plot. Uh, In this case, I knew that I wanted to write about some of the next... uh, stage challenges in, in technology, in particular, deep fakes, as they're called, which I hope we'll talk about later, the, the ability to create not just uh, false fake news, but but fake events, fake imagery, fake, uh, fake voices. But trying to think, how do I make that story real and powerful? I began thinking about one of the books I really uh, had enjoyed reading in the period when I was beginning work on the book in 2016-17, and that was Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And the portrait he draws of Rust Belt America and the, the angry people who grew up in, in towns like like Pittsburgh, like McKeesport, where the, my character, my, uh, Michael Dunn, who was the hero of, of the Paladin, uh, is from uh, pe- people from Youngstown, just across the Rust Belt. This the sense people have of of living in places that look as if they were defeated in war. This sense of just crushed 
uh, economic lives, uh, housing stock that was once vibrant, uh, churches and places of worship that have just had to shutter their doors. You know, one point in this novel, I talk about all the different Catholic churches uh, of of McKeesport for every ethnic group of Catholics that had come to work in the mills. They'd all been consolidated uh, by the last decade into one. There were so few people uh, left in, in, in the Monongahela Valley. So I, I became fascinated by this hillbilly elegy-like character called him Michael Dunn. And, you know, then as a novelist, once you have a character, you begin to understand he then takes the plot and hopefully makes it feel real for readers. Yeah, I know. It, 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 I love the, the discussion of the different Catholic churches and who they uh, uh, all uh, were for. Uh, it was a great uh, uh, reminder. I grew up uh, outside of Detroit. My first job was in uh, the Rouge plant expediting steel. And uh, that culture, that blue-collar, affluent culture, um, was a complete shock to to people like you and me who kind of went to prep school and college and then uh, uh, showed up uh, and started taking crap uh, and very sophisticated crap, I, I will add, from blue collar workers who might have graduated from high school. Uh, and the idea that somebody could be really smart, really talented, uh, really verbally adept, uh, and yet uh, not have graduated from high school and have a blue collar job, um, it was uh, an eye opening. And so I, uh, I identified with this guy uh, and with the plight of the folks there. Um, one of the things that I was struck by, I don't know if this is consistent with your view, but uh, um, the ethnic groups were all either both proud and a little defensive about themselves. And so a big part of the blue collar culture of the 70s and 80s was giving people crap about their ethnic origins. Uh, and it didn't matter whether it was race or ethnicity. Um, I, you know, I, I still know, you know derogatory ethnic terms for Hungarians. Um, a, and part of the psychological and social and political problem we have now is that that whole kind of uh, playing the dozens on people's ethnicity uh, has been translated into white supremacy by the overclass. Uh, and so these folks not only have lost out economically, but everybody is telling them it's because they're racist. You know, I, 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 I'm not going to miss too much the, the derogatory ethnic uh, uh, slurs, having heard a few more than a few directed at, at me uh, when I was a boy. Um, I do think, Stuart, that one of the luckiest things that happened to me in my career, I'll just mention it briefly because people probably think of me as a foreign policy uh, blob, uh, charter member of the blob. My first job uh, as a journalist, I'd gone to prep school in Washington. I'd, I'd gone to Harvard. I'd gone to graduate school at Cambridge University in England. My first job for the Wall Street Journal was covering the United Steelworkers of America, the largest industrial union in the country at that time. So I moved to Pittsburgh in 1976. Uh, I met my Wife and I will celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary uh, this month. I met uh, her there. My first date 
believe it or not, was to take her to a professional wrestling match uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia, <laughs> where this has been. So it's even more unlikely. I, the reason I had committed to do this, I just met this wonderful woman. Uh, my best source in the steelworkers was the local union president at Jones and Lock on the South Side, and on weekends, he uh, wrestled professionally under the stage name Jumpin' Johnny DeFazio. And I told Jumpin' Johnny I'd go see him. And uh, somehow, 40 years later, my, my wife still still isn't, isn't taking it out of me. To, imagine, you know, introducing uh, for your first date, this wonderful young woman to a guy in black Speedos, all sweaty. And, hi, so I want you to meet Jumpin' Johnny DeFazio. That's, so that's how we began. That's terrific. No, that uh, that that is uh, that is the part of the blue collar culture I was talking about. Uh, yeah, I've I've often thought you know you so you you saw those guys. I always thought that if you wanted to know what Trump's political philosophy was, it was the political philosophy of the steel workers in the seventies. Uh, 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 lots of patriotism, lots of insensitivity to ethnicity. Uh, um, uh, Strong protectionist streak, uh, uh, no enthusiasm for new immigrant labor. Uh, it's uh, he 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 must have spent the same kind of formative experience you did. Although I I, I don't think he met any professional wrestlers. You know, he, Donald Trump loves professional wrestling. He's a WWE ch- charter member. Um, it's the I watched the steel industry, and let's make it a proxy for. Uh, American manufacturing uh, begin to stumble and fall in the late 70s when I covered uh, first the steelworkers, then I covered the steel industry as a whole for the for the journal. And the truth that we forget is that that industry had become very uncompetitive. Uh, it simply couldn't compete in international markets. Other people were making steel more efficiently. Uh, wages in the American steel industry. This was blue collar royalty. I mean, it was people were making you know forty dollars plus an hour, and it gave them wonderful middle class lifestyles. Um, but it increasingly became unsustainable as a, as a business proposition. Management in steel, as in autos in that period, was weak. The unions were strong, aggressive, well managed. So I just watched um, year after year. Um, the industry declining. And an interesting point, you're a lawyer, so I'll just mention this and then leave steel behind. I've always thought that our antitrust laws played an important part in the destruction of our manufacturing base. Under the consent decrees uh, in the major monopolization cases against U.S. steel in particular, increasing your market share by driving the least efficient producers out of business was a prima facie case of monopolization. You would just you know, create nightmarish legal problems for yourself if you became more efficient, if you bought the new equipment, if you lowered the price of steel per ton, if you came out with innovative new ways to roll uh, steel. So I think our, our antitrust laws weirdly locked us in this uncompetitive position. Uh, the people who stayed in places like McKeesport, where my hero's from, they are Trump voters. They're angry. You understand why. But it's important to understand that the Pittsburgh area, take that as a proxy as a whole, has a higher real um, income for these statistical 
the metropolitan area than, than it ever did in the heyday of steel. Why? Because that's the miracle of the American economy. New businesses came in. Carnegie Mellon, the University of Pittsburgh created whole new uh, circles of innovation and and and, 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 and business. So uh, I, I I hate the. To, think of how the, our steel industry was crushed, but it was partly the fault of, of management. And in, in some ways, the, the fact that new businesses came in to fill that space is, is what makes us uh, strong economically as we are. Enough said. Well, in the book, that one of the in, in the book, one of the new industries that's come into Pittsburgh is cyber defense and cyber uh, uh, operations. Uh, uh, and that's what Dunn ends up doing. He, uh, uh, a, a brief version, I don't think it's a, a, there are any spoilers. Uh, uh, he goes to, uh, he's a CIA agent uh, who ends up going to jail for his uh, infiltration of a WikiLeaks type organization. He comes out and he starts a, uh, a cyber defense uh, organization. Uh, and one of the things he specializes in, you call it active defense. Uh, lots of people call it active defense, but uh, other people call it hacking back. He breaks into the uh, uh, command and control servers of people who are um, uh, causing grief to online users. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's the calling that he returns to. I, I wondered whether um, you, uh, obviously in a, a fiction book, it's better to have a guy who's uh, a little outside the law, who's but who's working for good. I, how do you feel about hacking back and active defense? Do you think that uh, it ought to be allowed more, more generally, or is that just uh, author's license to when you talk about your hero doing that? So, you know, Stuart, as, as you know better than, than most, um, this active defense hacking back is happening. The high-end uh, cyber consulting firms like the imaginary one that my hero, Michael Dunn, creates, which is called Paladin LLC, um, th those uh, are, are – becoming the tools of, of companies, law firms, uh, people with very sensitive information who, who've been hit, who want to do something about it. And, and they have concluded, unfortunately, that waiting for the government, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security to protect them, to protect their networks isn't going to work. So they do all the, the defensive things that you should to, to, to harden yourself against uh, intrusion penetration. But in some cases, people have uh, become more active. They've hacked back. In the in the ideal world, our government uh, in the United States should have a monopoly on force of every kind, including uh, cyber attack force. And this this would not be done privately, but it is being done. And I think the reason is that companies just feel vulnerable, and they don't believe the government is doing enough to help them. Yeah, it's for the same reason that people take guns out uh, to defend their stores if they think that there's going to be a riot. Uh, uh, they don't believe the police will protect them because the police are deterred from stopping the riot. Uh, and uh, um, whenever the government doesn't enforce the law, people who feel like they're victims are going to turn to to other uh, tools. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that it, it would make sense for the government to – to 
to try to regulate that rather than trying to pretend that, that there's no need for it because there's obviously a need for it. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the government's been very slow to get there. So just on this point, because you, you, you know so, so much about this, I have the impression that Cyber Command in this new uh, world that General Nakasone, the commander, uh, has tried to describe of persistent engagement, persistent low-level uh, cyber conflict, that as, as Cyber Command does its own version of, of active defense, forward, forward defense, engaging with adversaries, as it finds malware, as it finds signatures and threats, it's increasingly making those available various ways to private companies so that the private companies can act uh, more aggressively to defend themselves. And I'm curious to put the question back to you. Is, is that a good thing? That to, to give those tools to, to, to the private company. So my impression of what Cyber Command has been doing is, yes, they are releasing the tools that are being used by the North Koreans and the Iranians and others, um, but they're releasing them to the public in a way that um, it makes it harder for the North Koreans to succeed because once you know the kind of tool people are using, you can look for signatures and uh, uh, prevent those uh, uh, that code from succeeding. That's a little different from saying we found this, hack, this uh, uh, hacking tool and we're going to give it quietly to four or five firms that we trust. That, that isn't to say they don't do that on their own, and they might use government contractors to to take those tools and use them back against the people who invented them. Uh, but I I have not seen a circumstance where they um, said to somebody, uh, "You might want to use this too." I it, maybe it's happening. I just uh, no one has said that to me. Maybe you have better sources than I do. Well, in in, in my novel, Michael Dunn's life is destroyed. And I mean, in every way, he loses his job. He's sent to prison. He loses his marriage. His family's busted up by um, people who are operating behind what they claim is journalism uh, to put out false information that, that destroys him. And so when he gets out of prison, he decides that he wants to help people like him who are victimized by this super aggressive use of technology to, to put out false images, of destructive, uh, egregious violations of privacy. Um, would I like a world in which there are a lot of Michael Dunn's out there freelancing? N no, but I, I did want to convey the way in which people's lives can be turned completely upside down and they feel defenseless. And that's what's got to change. I mean, you made the point that if people need to feel that there's somebody defending their store so they don't take a shotgun uh, and do it themselves. So I, I, I want to pick up on something you said at the beginning of that. Uh, um, there's a lot there, but uh, I, I don't want to forget this. You said uh, people claiming to be journalists. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if there is a 2020 uh, analog to the 1980s steel industry, it is journalism. Uh, it, it's been laid waste to by the internet. Uh, and uh, um, it, and by people who are kind of 
quasi-journalists, uh, everybody from the folks who take uh, uh, citizen uh, 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 videos on the streets during protests to the uh, uh, you know internet research agency that is uh, uh, putting out fake news from Russia um, and uh, and WikiLeaks. Uh, so I I wondered clearly Michael Dunn has a very dark view of these folks at the edge of journalism, especially the WikiLeaks type sort type organizations. Uh, does that reflect your view, uh, or do you have a, a a less dark view of what's going on with the uh, the folks who are releasing information wholesale and kind of saying, well, you know, uh, damn the consequences. But one of, one of the things that I enjoy about, about being a novelist is that I get to let my characters um, say what people say, irrespective of whether I agree with it. It's, it's, it's not an op-ed right. piece. Uh, but there are, there are a lot of people who feel exactly the way Michael Dunn does, that the journalists um, take advantage, imagine they have a special category of citizenship. I have never believed that. I think, you know, we have First Amendment rights and, uh, and freedom of speech, freedom of the, of the press is the central to our, our founder's vision. But, but our, our rights aren't fundamentally different than, than, than those of, of other people. We shouldn't imagine there's a separate category. And, and today, every person who has a, a, a cell phone video camera, in a sense, is a, is a reporter. That's one of the things that's transforming our, our conversation about race is the ability to record in a visceral way what happens to uh, African-Americans who are subject to uh, arrest, uh, sometimes attack by police. It's captured on video and you just you can't look away. I mean, that knee on George Floyd's neck, no sensitive person can look at that and not feel a kind of revulsion. So, you know, and, 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 and are those people journalists? Well, not, not in the normal sense. They're citizens. They're active citizens using, using their freedom to, to capture and convey information. Uh, I, I do – so question, what's the difference between the Washington Post and WikiLeaks? Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I wouldn't want to give a definitive answer. But I'll describe some of the things that, uh, for me – not speaking for the paper, but for me as a person who works at the Post, um, characterize our work and, and make it part of the journalism profession. First, we, we, we curate information carefully. Um, if we get a dump of documents, we, we look through the documents carefully and following the admonition of, of our wonderful late uh, owner, Catherine Graham, if there's something that we see that, um, that causes potential danger to national security, to people working for intelligence agencies abroad, for the military, we have an obligation under the way we operate to take that information to the appropriate people and, and listen to them. Mm. doesn't mean that we'll do what they ask us to, but listen to their arguments about, about the danger. So I think that's one thing that, that um, journalists do. We, 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 we curate information. Um, we, we try to check it and make sure it's true. I, I think, you know, the, the, it, it should be the case that uh, 
stories, appearance in the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, or I think myself, it's, it's under my byline, that there's some uh, promise of accuracy there. I hate making mistakes. When I make a mistake, you know, I, we correct it immediately online. It's very embarrassing sometimes when people do make mistakes. But that's the second thing that I think is yeah, yeah, good journalism um, is about, is about um, making sure things are accurate. Don't just put the information out in a dump uh, and, you, and you don't you know, let others figure out whether it's true or not. That's part of, part of your job. I could cite other things um, that in my mind distinguish what we do from what a, a WikiLeaks um, does. Uh, you know, a whole separate set of questions about what legal jeopardy Julian Assange or anybody else sh should be should be in. Probably t take more time than, than than we have. But um, I don't I don't like the idea of, of, of people who are you know putting information out for the public being accused of espionage when there's not evidence to me of the, the intent that would be required for, for espionage. But I, 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 I do think that uh, professional journalists have certain rules. We need to be clearer, more open with the public about what they are so that people can hold us to them and say, hey, wait a minute. You, you know, you promised that you're going to be fair and you're going to promise you're going to check stuff. You didn't do it. You're not accountable. And then, and then we'll, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll respond and, and do better. Yeah. And, and actually the book talks a little bit about this. Uh, it gets into the idea that uh, these days using what's called generative adversarial networks, which is basically creating two artificial intelligences uh, um, uh, to work against each other uh, to, and to make each other better, uh, uh, you can produce pretty compelling uh, fake videos, certainly fake uh, still pictures and fake audio. Um, we're not quite at the point where anybody can uh, imitate anybody, but you can see it from here. Um, and then, you know, just uh, the, the notion of citizen journalism is very compelling but uh, you know there there is strong reason to believe that the antifi activists have learned to game that by saying you can come take pictures of us if you're on our side and basically agree that if something happens that is reflecting poorly on Antifa, you'll bury it uh, and uh, you'll edit your videos so that it makes us look good and the police look bad. Uh, uh, and if you won't do that, and there are certainly uh, uh, conservative citizen journalists who have refused to do that, we will crowd you, we will beat you, we will knock your camera to the ground and step on it, uh, and you'll, uh, you, you basically won't have a record. So from deep fakes to a kind of crowdsourced censorship, I, it's going to be, you know, the lack of curation for some of these things is going to be really damaging. So um, the, that uh, crowdsourced um, uh, censorship intimidation is a, a frightening. Your description of it is very powerful. I, I haven't seen all the reporting that would back that up, but I, that's, that's a, uh, genuinely de de disturbing in a sense what you're describing and this is uh, I, I i think is increasingly characteristic of uh, the uh, problems for for journalism um is is embedding i mean i got started as a war correspondent that's what i did after covering the steel industry i was sent to the middle east 
And in those days, uh, we operated with effectively a, a kind of a white flag invisibly attached to our to our jackets that said that you know we were there to serve readers and, and tell the str- truth about what was happening. And so we would travel in Beirut. Literally, you would travel across uh, the and then. Uh, no man's uh, land, the green uh, line where there were snipers out. And we'd report in the morning on the Palestinians, in the afternoon on the on the, the Christian militias that were firing shells at them. And that was our job, was to go back and forth. As war has become more uh, violent um, and as social media allows people to communicate directly, they don't need the Washington Post or the Associated Press to tell people their story. They can tell their followers their story directly on social media, increasingly we're forced to embed. You're you're either traveling with and reporting on one side and accepting its rules, its its embed rules, or you're traveling with another side. Um, And the situation you describe, again, I don't know if it's true or not, but but Antifa is an example of the embedding rules that I hope we'll we'll resist. I covered the... uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq as a so-called unilateral journalist, which meant that I wasn't embedded. Um, it was, um, you know, I, not the race to Baghdad in the in the in the general's Humvee, but we were able to see some things because we could travel on our own and talk to people that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Like, for example, if there was an insurgency in the first week of the war, you could tell if you if you stayed behind. In the towns and villages that we were racing through, you could you could see the problems that were that were ahead. So I I'm I, I worry about embedding about the requirement that you be on the team if you're going to report uh, for a particular outlet. And I think I think good journalists should you know, resist should rebel against that. Just say we are not going to play by those rules. Yeah, uh, I, I, it, 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 it's, it's a great idea, the, but on the street, it might be hard to do. And there have been allegations, for example, that the Palestinian intifada uh, used similar selective uh, uh, video techniques uh, and didn't let uh, um, news sources get involved in uh, uh, following them around. Um, so it's not, it's not a new phenomenon, but I think you're right that uh, uh, it means we're going to have to be much more sp- suspicious of the provenance of any media, even media that actually turns out to be showing actual events, if we don't know who was in charge of editing it, generating it, uh, and certainly if there's a possibility that it's fake, which increasingly looks uh, like something we'll all have to worry about. And you spend some time on that in the book. I, I, I do. I, you know, I, I think... Um financial journalism where people have money at risk can lead the way. Uh, if you're actively trading in financial markets where you could be manipulated by, you know, uh, I give examples in the book, a, a, a fake video footage of an oil spill that would have a catastrophic effect on the market value of, a, of an oil company or a, a company that's, that's running tankers. Um, uh, a company that is dependent on a charismatic CEO and, and is vulnerable to um, manipulated false information about the CEO's health, a, you know, suggestion that the, he has a, a fatal cancer. And, and uh, um, people who uh, are uh, vulnerable to that kind of uh, f- f- 
manipulated false information through deep fake technology or whatever are going to insist on reliable um, sources, uh, you know, a clean flow of information but before they put their money at risk. So the value of, of good, true, reliable information that good journalists will produce should go up, which will make over time um, the financial uh, you know, the sort of value proposition of, of journalism better. People will pay more. Trust. I think this period where we're just kind of going nuts, you know, um, uh, everything is hyper, uh, you know, spun. I just don't see that continuing forever because it's just, just too dangerous, dangerous to our political health as we see, but it's also dangerous to our financial health. You really can't operate in, in an environment where you have no idea whether the information coming at you is true or false. You just can't. So you're going to find another way to go. So I, I as a journalist, one of the things that you I don't expect to do is to become the story. Uh, but I want to close by giving you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, the, the time, uh, a story you wrote during the transition from Obama to Trump. Uh, in January 12, uh, you wrote a story that really, uh, I think, broke the fact that um, uh, the government had records of uh, Michael Flynn's calls with Russian ambassador Kislyak uh, and um, identified uh, somebody's concern, not necessarily yours, uh, that there was a Logan Act violation. That is to say that he was engaging in diplomacy without a license because he wasn't yet in government. Uh, uh, That story um, has taken on a lot of significance to the people who are concerned about whether the Obama administration crossed any lines in its treatment of Flynn and the Trump administration uh, and the fact that uh, somebody brought you that story. I'm not going to ask you who, uh, but somebody uh, uh, you characterize as a senior government official brought you the story that it was a the first leak of a FISA intercept of an American. Um, tell me, uh, how does it feel to suddenly discover that you're being reported on as opposed to getting to do the reporting? Well, I, I'd always rather be be doing doing the reporting and writing. Um, the, as I look back on that column, the period of January 12th, one thing that people should know, because it, it is uh, discussed a lot, is that it, it mentioned four things that people should be concerned about when they thought about the issue of Russia, Russia's involvement in, in our in our political campaign. Um, the first was that we just needed to have an investigation, so we knew the facts. We had that through Mueller, and I, you know. Mueller's conclusions, whether you like the way he, you know, he ended up putting them together or not, were you know, uh, it was a rigorous investigation, um, and it provided us facts that we didn't have. And, and that was the second question I asked was, why did it take Obama so long to react after it became clear to our intelligence agencies that Russia was conducting this, this major uh, covert intervention? Uh, in the campaign to try to help Trump uh, hurt uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I, I say, it's now clearer and clearer, Obama was afraid that if he took action 
before the election, he would make the problem worse and call down an even more decisive Russian intervention. So I think that's still really important. I, I did talk about, about Michael Flynn's uh, contact with uh, the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, on December 29, the, the, the day that President Obama finally took decisive action to defend our country, I would say, against this uh, covert action by, by Russia, expelling 35 Russians, presumably uh, most of them intelligence officers, um, to, to make sure that Russia paid a price. And I uh, asked, why, why on that day did the uh, national security advisor uh, designate Michael Flynn uh, contact Kislyak? And I have asked it as, as, a, as a question. Uh, what did he say? Did it undercut the sanctions that had been announced by Obama that very day? Uh, and if so, was that was that appropriate? I, was a line of the Trump team's contact helped contacts helped discourage the Russians from counter retaliation. Maybe that's a good thing, but we ought to know the facts. And I still believe that's wrong. And the final thing I, I noted was the possibility that everything that was coming at us through the Christopher Steele report and other uh, information that was being spun put it being put into our media uh, through active Russian efforts to, to uh, manipulate us and I think that still is a, is a relevant question so um, I, you know I, I I think each of those has remained important I wouldn't take them back um, and uh, you know each each came out of a lot of reporting I won't go into details of any any item on that list of four but um, you know, it's a column I'm still glad I wrote. Yeah, no, it, you, it, it, it touched on some issues that we're still learning things about. Uh, the uh, um, the possibility that the government, the uh, Russian government, was influencing the uh, uh, allegations in the Steele dossier looks stronger and stronger since the main subsource that Steele turned to uh, was almost himself the subject of a FISA uh, intercept, uh, and he escaped mainly because he left the country. That certainly suggests that he was actively working for the Russian government. Uh, or looked like it, uh, and for him to repeat all these tales about Trump to uh, steal in this context does does look suspicious. Uh, I agree, and we now know you're right. Uh, 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 Mike Flynn was calling the um, Russian government and trying to talk them down from uh, reaction, uh, from from taking strong action. One suspects the implicit. Uh, a message was things might get better if you can manage not to um, uh, blow this up in the next three weeks. Um, uh, but on the whole, in fact, things didn't get much better on that issue, and they never did uh, get to uh, to take a counter-retaliation. So uh, uh, ironically, uh, Flynn's intervention, the thing that cost him his job, probably was one of the better diplomatic moves in that, uh, in that chapter. You know, but one thing I, I have written about about uh, this episode is if there was nothing inappropriate about what Flynn did in that conversation with Kislyak, the question is why he sought immediately after my column appeared to uh, basically, uh, you know, cover up the record. So here's I have a theory on that. I 
my, my theory is that, that that the Logan Act scared him more than it scared you, uh, and it scared Trump and Team Trump. They were not very sophisticated about government. They'd never heard of the the, uh, uh, the Logan Act before. Suddenly, it was they were being uh, it was being suggested they were all felons for having done this stuff. Uh, and the first reaction, and one suspects the first reaction of President Trump, was to lie about it uh, and to say, no, no, we didn't do that because uh, that would make the Logan Act issue go away. Uh, uh, so um, if, if I had to pick the most plausible theory, it's that uh, Flynn was uh, lying, knew he was lying and figured the president knew he was lying. Uh, and uh, you know, it was a dumb lie to avoid a dumb legal liability theory, um, and it blew up on pretty much everybody involved. Well, I, 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 I think you, you put it better than I, than I could. The, the, as I said in that first column, act, uh, column, the Logan Act was a thin reed to even imagine prosecuting anybody on. Um, but the, on the case of the Flynn Kislyak call and the other items I mentioned, I mean, I wish that I could say that we'd really turned a page, but there's still there's still relevant issues, and I don't want us to be tied up in knots, you know, for the rest of my life, uh, endlessly relitigating this. Um, but but I, I uh, you know, I, I think the, for President Trump to call for the indictment of Barack Obama and, uh, and Joe Biden, uh, I just like it's happening in a different universe than I understand. Yep, I I, I agree. You know, it's it, it it's um, it's like a banana republic. If you're not in office, you're under indictment. Uh, uh, and uh, just remember that though, when um, uh, the uh, criminal investigations of President Trump uh, begin, uh, if he loses the election, as it looks like he might, uh, uh, because uh, um, if he is indicted, even for stuff that isn't his acts in uh, office, uh, it will raise questions about whether he was really being indicted by people who disliked his uh, actions in uh, uh, the um, presidency. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 finding a way to de-escalate the, uh, the tribal nature of our politics is a major project. I'm, I, I agree we need to do that. We just need to make sure we do it uh, uh, multilaterally rather than unilaterally. I, All right. I, uh, that we've, gone, <laughs> we've gone a long way from uh, uh, the original discussion of uh, technology in the Paladin, but uh, it is certainly a timely book. Uh, and David, you've shown that uh, you can pretty much go anywhere uh, anybody wants to go from the future of journalism to uh, the future of the steel industry to crossing the green line in Beirut uh, uh, to uh, generative adversarial uh, networking. Uh, um, the book is The Paladin uh, and uh, it's available. I got it off of uh, Amazon. Uh, uh, David, uh, any last words? No, I just, I, I share your, your hope uh, that, uh... You know, next time you and I talk, it'll be about putting the country back together for real. The, and the, the idea will be stuck in this uh, moment, um, shouting each other about what happened in 2016 forever. Sounds awful. And 
<laughs> so yeah, I'm does. with you on that. So do you, uh, let, let, better uh, topic, are you working on yet another book? So I, I'm just now in the in the stage where I'm doing what I, I described to you earlier. I'm looking for characters and plot that kind of will allow me to tell the story. And there's a moment where you know when you're going on a roller coaster and you kind of so the, the chain clicks in and the car begins to go up, and then it's going to just happen. Uh, the chain hasn't quite clicked, but it's it's close. Okay, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I I, I basically just have a standing order for David Ignatius uh, books, uh, uh, so I'm looking for look forward to the next one. That's David Ignatius. His uh, most recent novel is The Paladin. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Stuart. And that wraps up our interview with David Ignatius. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been episode. 333 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. I want to uh, thank uh, both David Ignatius uh, and Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design for the new introductory and outroductory uh, uh, music. Uh, please do send us your questions, comments, feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com and suggest a uh, interview guest. And if you uh, do that and somebody comes on the program, we will send you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mugs. Uh, from time to time, I go on Twitter to preview some of the stories we're thinking about doing and giving people a chance to uh, vote on which ones they want to hear us cover. Uh, so if you follow me on at Stuart Baker, that's E.W. Stuart Baker, uh, you can vote on the, the content of the program yourself. Uh, please do rate the show. We've got starting to get uh, more reviews and I appreciate them. Wherever you uh, are um, aggregating podcasts, uh, you ought to find a review function and just leave us a review. Uh, and uh, if we like it or if we hate it, but it's entertaining, we will uh, uh, read it on the air. Uh, please uh, join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.